greet you in the name of Jesus. So good to see all of you here. This morning, I would like to I would like to talk about faith, and right now I'm wishing that I had more of it. Uh, somehow it seems when you think that you should have it, you wonder where it went. I'd like to, in this message, I'd like to wrap up the, the series that I've been doing on, on Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, running with endurance. <clears throat> Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So, we have... Seeing that we're in life, in this life, we are in a race, and that um, it is a marathon and not not simply a um, a hundred yard dash. Last time we we looked at that at the need for us to sometimes lay off those things that, that so easily beset us, those things that weigh us down. And sometimes those things aren't necessarily sin, um, but there's things in our life that we need to let go of in order for us to be able to, to finish or win the, the marathon. I'm sure many of you, like myself, Sometimes we wonder, well, how can we, how can we finish this? How can we endure in this marathon when we're weary and, and tired and seems that our prayers are unanswered and, and it seems that God might be far away and friends forget us and Loved ones might reject us. And at, at times like that, we wonder, well, how are we going to continue on? How can we finish the marathon? And that's, I would like to attempt to answer that question this morning. Some of us are on, on that race. Some of us are just started. And we're at, at uh, if you remember, a marathon is 26, it's a little over 26 miles. Some of us are a mile into it. Some of us are uh, almost halfway. Some of us are halfway. And some of us are at Heartbreak Hill, if you, re if you remember the, the Boston Marathon, at about three quarters of the way. There is a series of hill, hills. Um, for several miles, from about the halfway point to the three-quarters point, there is a series of uphill climbs. It's uphill, plateau, uphill, plateau, 
till you get about three quarters of the way and there's at that point there's the steepest hill in the entire race some of us might find ourselves there we're wondering how in the world we're going to do another seven or eight miles when we can't hardly get up this hill it's easy to become delusional and discouraged and, and to believe that that we're we're no longer running well enough or fast enough some of us might be at mile 25 but but we wonder why what uh, what why are we still in the race so this morning I would like to to speak about what it is that compels us to continue what it is that gives us the motivation to continue when we get to those times when we're weary and, and, and discouraged and so what I'd like to look at the phrase in our scripture this morning is the first part of the verse therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses now this is verse 1 in chapter 12 and we tend to we tend to categorize our scriptures in chapters and verses but remember the writer did not write it with chapters and verses and so when the original readers read this they naturally they they read this through the lenses of what they had just read chapter 11 so in order for us to understand what what the writer is trying to convey here i think it would be good for us to also as well go and and see what what point he has made what he has said in in chapter 11 before we go there of course we know that faith is the topic there in that chapter and it seems like the writer as he is he is in, in chapter 11 what he is wanting people to to understand is the the way the people in chapter 11 the way Abel and Enoch and Noah and and Abraham and Isaac the way they live their lives that's what he is referring to of course then he says in verse 2 before he gets there he says that all these people obtained a good report because of faith and then he goes on and explains how all these people what they how they live their lives in a nutshell gives us a glimpse of their lives and how how that they um, what it was that they did and then he says that they were faithful Faith is something that we, all of us, are, we, it's something that we talk about, it's something that we, we all profess to have, um, and yet sometimes it, we wonder where it is. One of the reasons that we do, um, we, we take it seriously is because of what the writer here in, in this, in chapter 11 says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
And also in, in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. So, with, with, without faith, there is nothing accomplished that is worth accomplishing. One of the first things that I did in this study was to look at the definition of faith in the dictionary. And I was, it was interesting for me. The first definition is allegiance to duty or a person. As in, he, he has lost faith in the company's president. We might, sometimes we use it, we say that we have, I have faith that so-and-so will accomplish whatever he's setting out to do. I have, I trust, and in that sense we're using it maybe a little more like trust, I have faith that he will do what he says he will. The second definition is a belief and trust and loyalty to God, belief in traditional doctrines of a religion. Sometimes we use it as a noun. We say that the faith, that my faith, or I am of the Christian faith, and, and we use it in the sense that it is something that we have. Firm belief in something for which there is no proof. And when I initially, when I read this, I thought, okay, now we're finally getting, we're finally getting somewhere. The example there's clinging to the faith, a, a, like a, a, a woman clinging to the faith that her missing son would one day return. And as I studied that, I, I began to wonder uh, whether the dictionary actually gives us an accurate or a full definition of biblical faith. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews, in the first verse of chapter 11, he says that now faith is the substance of things hoped for, it is the evidence of things not seen. And as I, after I, I looked at this definition, I, I went back to this and, and I, I looked at a few more um, translations. The ISV says, Now faith is the assurance that what we hope for will come about and the certainty that what we cannot see exists. And as I wrestled with this to try to understand really what faith is. And I, I, I reread that definition, especially that I, I began to see that, that there, I, I think there is a difference in a, a blind hope, calling that faith, and an actual living faith in something that we have some evidence for. 
clinging to the faith that her missing son will one day return, that is simply... Now, in that situation, maybe there are some, maybe there are some, some facts that might give evidence, but that, that statement is simply a, a blind hope. It's simply saying, I, I don't give up. I don't believe that he is dead or that he is whatever. I, I hope that at some point he will return. But there is no evidence to base that on. So I would like to, in chapter 11, turn to verses 8. And I would like to look at the life of Abraham and, and try to try to draw some lessons from the life of Abraham. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want. I have it on the PowerPoint as well. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sandwiches by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed them that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things were... For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. One of the first observations that I made about Abraham here is that living by faith means to be obedient. Abraham obeyed. Abraham did what he knew to do at the time. Verse 8 there, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive for an inheritance. Now, we don't know how that call came, whether there was an audible voice that spoke to him. What we do know is that at the time he was living in Ur of the Chaldeans, that the history of that is a little bit obscure, but it's fairly commonly accepted that that was a, a well-to-do... Um, I don't know if country or city, city-state... The amount of people, it's a little hard to say, but um, definitely in the tens of thousands would have been a, a civilized place. People would, have, people would have 
lived in houses and there would have been some infrastructure. And, and so Abraham obeyed God and left that place. The second thing is accepting God's call without knowing where it leads. And I think for many of us, for me particularly, this, this is a big one. Especially under the influence of our current culture of with all the knowledge, all the, um, you know, if we don't know something, what do we do? Anybody that's younger than 40 for sure, we probably Google it. Right? <laughs> uh, and we can figure everything out before we ever go. Um, Abraham didn't, when God called him to go, he didn't look on Google Maps to see where Canaan is. And he didn't do a study on the Canaanites to see who lives there and what, what kind of commerce they're involved in and, and whether he would have a job once he gets there. And, and you know, those are things that I would probably want to do if I was going to move somewhere. Um, I, would, I, would do some, I would do some research on it and, and figure it out. Last part of verse 8 says, And he went out not knowing where he was going. He went out not knowing where he was going. And I, I'm not sure that, that I completely... That's, that is a tough one for me personally. Going somewhere or doing something, maybe specifically more, doing something without understanding exactly what you're doing. Third thing is, living by faith is waiting on God to keep his promise. When God asked Abraham to go, there was no timetable on how soon all this would take place. Uh, remember, they left Ur and they went to the land of Haran and lived there. It seems like they lived there for, for a few years. Um, Lot was with him. Abraham's father and his brother Nahor were with them at that point. And then... From there, Abraham left again. And we don't know for sure all those details on the time frame. Some, some, some scholars actually would think that there were two, two separate calls, one when he left Ur and then one when he left um, Haran. But there was no timetable for him to arrive in Canaan um, there was no timetable for him to, to receive that land of his own. Verses 9 and 10. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So here he is. He has arrived. He's in the land of Canaan. God has promised to give him the land. God has promised to give him a, a, a people, a descendants that will be innumerable. 
But here he is, he's childless, and he's living by himself with his wife in the land of Canaan in tents. He doesn't, he doesn't own the land, and he's, he's a stranger. Living in tents, I think of if you're living in tents, that's not very permanent. That's not like you have come and now the land is yours. In some ways, this is even more remarkable than leaving Ur in the first place because when he left, you know, if you think about it, when you leave and you're traveling towards someplace and you think, when I arrive, then, then we can settle down and we can, we can establish a home or, or whatever. We can then begin a new life or whatever we can, we can begin. But he gets there and he's still living in tents. And there are still no, no children and the land isn't, isn't his. <clears throat> Number four, living by faith means never taking your eyes off Jesus. Last uh, verse 10 there, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So as I, as I studied Abraham to see how he can be a, a cheerleader, um, a cloud of witnesses, a part of that cloud of witnesses for us, it occurred to me that Abraham was okay with living in tents. And Abraham was okay with not knowing for sure when all this will take place. He, he accepted that this ambiguity, this uncertainty, would be to some degree a part of his life. Now we're going to see a little later on here that Abraham was just like, just like us and he wrestled with these things. But if we're going to live by faith, we have to recognize that this world is not our home, and as long as we live here, there will be uncertainty, and there will be disappointments. We will be strangers and pilgrims. Peter talks about that in this land, and that unless we have our, our focus fixed on, as Abraham had, that, that city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God, for us, this side of, of Jesus coming, for us, unless we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will become disillusioned, we will become discouraged, and we won't be able to see the, the road ahead because we are looking for that assurance and that security in this life when it actually won't happen until you have met Jesus. <clears throat> so, 
in conclusion on, on faith, I have concluded personally for myself that faith is not a blind hope, but rather it is a step in an unknown direction based on previous experience or knowledge. That there, is, that there has been a, a call on your life or that there is something that compels you to believe that where you will go, in our case as Christians, that we know that if we keep our focus on Jesus, and we know because, not even because of biblical history, but because of secular history, that the biblical accounts of what Jesus has done on the cross for us are true. And so therefore, we can, on that assurance, we can know that we can, we can go ahead in confidence and faith, keeping our gaze fixed on Jesus. I want to look at a few things, just, just so we know that Abraham is a person just like us, that faith is not. <clears throat> One of the things about faith is living by faith is not never doubting. It is, it is a normal part of our lives to wrestle and to question with things in our lives. We'll look at what Abraham did. In back in Genesis, Genesis 15, this is where the Lord comes to Abraham again. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, if we go back and we read the story in Genesis, one of the things that stood out to me, I think Abraham wrestled a lot with, with the promise that God had given to him about the heirs but there were no children. Because we see it coming up again and again. We see it here. He's, God comes to Abraham, and what does Abraham do? The first thing he says is, well, God, what about the children? I'm, I'm trying to put this together. How are you going to fix this? goes on in verse 3, says, Look, you have given me no offspring, indeed, one born in my house is my heir, speaking of Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham was questioning God. He was not sure that the Lord would follow through with the promise that he had made. And so when God shows up, he brings that to his attention. Hey, look. And again, we see that maybe even more clearly later on when in, in the case with Hagar. Um, Abraham, Sarah, uh, suggests that, well, maybe in order for them to have children, um, she would give her maid to him for his wife, and they would have children that way. 
And we don't read at all that Abraham objected or that he reminded her of what God had said, but that he took her up on, his, on her plan. Um, and then, again, later on, after that, after Hagar came back, Ishmael is now a son. God comes to Abraham again in chapter 17. God remi- Abraham reminds God again. And he asks God, could you not just bless, bless Ishmael? I have a son here. Why don't just make him the heir? So Abraham, I think, had a really hard time believing and understanding how this would all play out. He was just like us. The second thing is, living by faith is not... Never being afraid. And we saw that there in verse 15, when God came to Abraham and we told him not to be afraid. If Abraham was not, if there was no fear, why did he tell him that? We also see it back in verse 12, initially when they moved to Egypt. Verse Chapter 12, verse 11, And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, and they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Abraham was afraid that they were going to kill him. And so he devised a plan, schemed up a, a, an untruth, actually, partial truth, Sarah was his half-sister, but he he was deceptive in that. And he was deceptive because he didn't trust God. He was afraid of what would happen if these people knew uh, that she was his wife. I'd like to return now to our passage in chapter 12. What's going on? I think the battery's dead. Um. So I'd like to read this scripture. I'd like to, to, to read only parts of it. Um, the first portion of the verse that we looked at, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So what the writer wants us to understand is that the the, whatever these people were facing, we see a little later on there in chapter 12 that they, they, uh, um, they had been facing some, some difficulties, that they are not alone. That there is, there have been people 
that have walked the same path before. So because of these people, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There we go. Thank you. Looking unto Jesus, consider him, speaking of Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So two things that the writer is wanting us to to understand here. There have been others that have went the way before us, and because of them, we can look back and see how they have lived their lives. And then let us run with endurance our own race, looking unto Jesus, and consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So, when we are at heartbreak hill and our legs are rubber and our lungs feel like they're on fire and we wonder why we are here and why everybody else is way ahead winning the race this is what he tells us to do first of all consider those who have went before but looking unto Jesus and consider him lest you become weary so in this, in this analogy of a race, there occurred to me something that many of us are somewhat familiar with, and that is that in the world of sports, there is, there's a well-established phenomenon, something called the home court advantage. If For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, what that is, is statistically it's been proven that any sports team will win more games at their home field or court than they do when they are at someone else's court. And that was proven especially well at the... um, Boston Celtics, the NBA team, I'm not a sports guy, so I don't know if any of you guys know of them or not, but back from until 1995, the arena that they had was called the Boston Garden, and it was built in 1928, and so it was during the 70s, 80s, the early 90s, it was beginning to be a little bit outdated. However, especially during the 80s, the Celtics won from in the in the 85-86 and the 86-87 season, they won 71 games at home and only lost 3. And a lot of it had to do with the culture at the Boston Garden. 
um, there were some unique features about it. One of it was that the, um, well, for one, there was no air conditioning. And so you were, if you were there, you were, you were in the game, probably um, sweating yourself. The other thing was it was built originally back in 1928 to host boxing matches. And so the, the seats came down much closer to the actual um, floor than, than most modern arenas. And so um, the, if you were, if you were the, the, the crowd was right on top of, of the basketball court. Um, the, the floor was, was an old... Um, an old wooden, I can't think of the word, where they had the checkerboard uh, hardwood floor in there. And, of course, all the visiting teams knew that that floor played horribly because the ball bounced differently at different places. Well, that was all to the advantage of the Boston Celtics because they knew how that floor played. They knew at which, you know, they knew how the ball would respond depending where they were on the court. <clears throat> but more than that, the, the spectators, the crowd, would, was a very vocal crowd. And in fact, in, in that old building, it would often be so loud that there was no way to communicate. And the, the, of course, most of the people there would have been Celtic fans, maybe a few fans from the opposing team. But so what happened is the, the, the crowd was cheering for their team, which would be the Celtics, and the visiting team, they could hardly even communicate. And then the ball wouldn't bounce right, and they had a hard time winning a game there. Well, this morning, I would like to propose that as we're running this race, we also have the home court advantage. We have even more than the Boston Celtics. We have a group of people that has lived their lives before us that leaves us a testimony that we can, that, that encourages us and cheers us on. <clears throat> There's two things I would like to, to leave with you as we close. The first one is that we have the home court advantage. The second one is to stay focused. Abraham, even though he, fa he, he had his failures, he was human just like us. He, was, he lied and, and uh, he, he was, did everything that that a lot of people fall for. But over the long term, he stayed focused. 
When God spoke, Abraham listened. He knew that life was more than wandering in a desert. And so this morning, I would like to encourage us to stay focused, to keep a, a laser focus on Jesus. Another example of, uh, of staying focused from, from um, baseball this time, I don't know if any of you remember Ted Williams, some of you older guys. Ted uh, was one of the greatest hitters back in the 50s and, and 60s. In fact, he's one of the only few that ever batted over 400 during one whole season. And, and for you who don't know what that means, that means that he, he got 40% of the time that he was up to bat, he made a hit. And in professional baseball, that is, that's pretty rare. He had a lifetime average of, of 344. One of the things, there were, there were several things, one, one thing that contributed to that, one thing was that he, he, he enjoyed hitting. He was good at it, and he studied it. Um, he had extremely good eyesight. But maybe more than anything was his ability to focus. He was known to, when he was in the batting box, there was almost nothing, literally nothing, that could distract him, take his eyes off the pitcher. In fact, his teammates tried that one time. They, they tried to distract him by just as the pitcher wound up and released, they threw some small firecrackers at his feet and he never blinked. He was completely focused on watching the ball come. Well, this morning, I don't know where you're at in life, but I would like to encourage you to, to stay focused, to keep your eyes on Jesus. I would like to encourage us to, to remember that there are others that have gone, that, have, that are, are cheering us on, that have gone the way before us. You've been running for what seems like forever now. You're tired. You're discouraged. You can hardly move one foot ahead of the other. Your lungs feel like they could tear at any minute. Sometimes it seems as if you're the only one left in the race. Others have either finished a long time ago or have dropped behind or some have even dropped out completely. But as you press ahead and you near the next bend, 
you began to hear the cheering. As you round the bend, you recognize that they're cheering for you and that it is those who have gone before. As you become, as you get a little closer, you recognize Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, Jacob, many of the other Old Testament saints. They're encouraging you to keep your eyes on the finish line. Keep looking ahead. Keep, stay focused. You feel some renewed energy surge through you as you move ahead. You notice a little further another group. You recognize Peter, the apostles, the rest of the disciples. There's Mary and Martha. There's the Apostle Paul, Timothy, Barnabas. There are many other New Testament saints. They're encouraging you to keep your eyes on the finish line, to keep looking ahead, to stay focused. You notice other saints from throughout history. Men that men and women that you'd only read about that seemed a little vague, maybe. And yet men and women who had lived faithful lives and had been an encouragement. Men such as Felix Manns and Conrad Grebel and Mendel Simons. And <clears throat> towards the finish line, towards the last group, you see some more familiar faces. Maybe your grandparents are there, cheering you on, encouraging you to stay focused. Maybe your parents are there, or maybe your siblings. Some of you might have children there. And they're all cheering for you. <clears throat> but what has really captivated you, what has your full attention, is at the end. There by the finish line, there is Jesus. He's waiting for you with outstretched hands. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us. We thank you so much, Father, that you care for us. Father, we are grateful for all those who have gone before and have left us a, a testimony of faithfulness. Men like we are, men who were afraid, men who, men who took their eyes off you and, and fell, but men who got up again and, and looked towards you. We are grateful, Lord, for the Old Testament saints who looked ahead to you, who were faithful enough to keep on even though they never received the promise. 
So, Father, this morning, as we pray, I ask that as we leave here, that we could keep our focus on you, and that we could, through faith, that we could keep on until you call us home. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.